You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. You will turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we've been walking through this book and continue to over the next few weeks. James chapter 2, while you're finding your place, I want to encourage you that as you are living out your life in a hurried pace, um, take the time to look around you and see where God is working. Uh, oftentimes, we get caught up in our schedules and all that you've got to do, and man, you just live week to week and you don't even think about all the work that God is doing all around you and the prayers that He's answering that you've been asking about that you might have even forgot that you asked about. That God is actually working out those details right then in your, in your life. So take the time this week. It may be a sunrise or a sunset. It may be um, simply some time with family and a myriad of things. God is at work in your life. Take the time to acknowledge that. And um, here's a wild idea. Let's just try smiling a little bit more. It seems rather simple, doesn't it? But our, our country's a dumpster fire right now. And I think a smile can go a long way. Some kindness, some gentleness, some self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, here, you sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, we pause in this moment to say thank you for the clarity and the beauty of your word. Sometimes, Father, your word takes us to a mountaintop where we can see your beauty, your righteousness, your character. It's almost as though, Father, through your word that that we almost can, can reach out and touch you. And then, Father, there are times where your word takes us to the depths of despair. Takes us to really deep, dark places that, quite frankly, bring conviction. And then, Father, there are times that your word is, is like a sword, like a, like a scalpel that cuts deeply. Not to wound, but to heal. And, Father, the text that we have in front of us today is that type of text. It cuts But it doesn't cut to destroy, it it cuts to heal. Father, the words that James wrote so many years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Father, it impacts us right where we are today. So Father, my prayer is is that for every one of us this morning, we would not put on our masks this morning. And that, Father, we would hear your words. And Father, that we would not be just hearers only. That we wouldn't just, wouldn't just gain some more knowledge this morning through the songs we just sung or as we get into your word. That, that Father, we would make the commitment right now that what we hear, we will follow through on. 
that we would not just be hearers but doers also. Because, Father, faith that is real is faith that is alive, and faith that is alive is faith that is active. So, Father, we are listening. And, Father, we ask you to speak. Speak to us corporately. Speak to us individually. And, Father, take the scalpel that you use to help us to grow up and use it this morning to cut some things out of our life, out of my life that needs to go. We ask all this in the powerful, powerful name of Christ, our King, our Redeemer. We ask this in his name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you've ever flown anywhere commercially, uh, you may have experienced this. Um, I don't know about you, but if I've, every time I've ever flown anywhere commercially, I have to go for the cheap seats. So I'm, I'm online trying to figure out the very cheapest seat, and oftentimes the cheapest seat is the seat that puts you in the very back of the plane. And so you're standing at the gate. You know, you've been going through all of this turmoil at the airport to get to your gate. You're finally there. You get there early, and the person comes over the intercom, and it's time to start boarding the plane. Well, who gets the board first? Is it, is it the guy that bought the $99 ticket? No, it's not me. It's the people who bought the first class tickets. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, and this is not to pick on you if you fly first class. God bless you. I'm glad you have the resources to do that. I've never had that experience. But the, the, the person gets on the intercom and says, now we're going to board first class. If you are in the first class cabin, if you could please stand and come up and, and prepare to board. Have you ever noticed when that call comes out how those folks stand up really straight and tall? Have you ever noticed that? Man, their shoulders are up. Maybe a little smile. They're kind of looking at me out of the corner of their eye going, yeah, you're not, you're not with us. <laughs> it's kind of an elite group that you get to be part of. It's pretty awesome. I've not got to be part of that group. But you see them board the plane, and they're on there at least 30 minutes before you ever get your name called, maybe even an hour. Uh, I remember the first time that we flew, flew to China, I'd never flown on a real big, I'm talking like the 747, big plane. And it's the same kind of thing. We're kind of in the back back there in the, kind of the coach section. And uh, they boarded us through first class. So this, this plane is massive. And you know, the 747, the, the cockpit is above first class. First class goes all the way to the nose of the plane. So we, we boarded the plane through first class. Was we, I wish I'd have never seen it. I'd have been a whole lot better off in that 12-hour flight if I had never seen first class. Because I had no idea this stuff existed on a plane. Because all I've been experienced to is back there in the back with the vagabonds, right? The losers, which I am one of. I'm joking. So I'm walking through first class. These people have already had a four-course meal, man. There's steak, prime rib. You know, they've got salmon over here. And they've already had their first round of wine. And they've got their seats reclining. They've got literal, like, whole portals that they're sitting in over here with big screen TVs and and, and like they got their own attendants to take care of just a few people, and they've got like hot hot towels. And I was standing there, and I'm thinking, man, this is pretty awesome. And those people are looking at me like, man, get to the back of the plane, dude. Then you walk across the line. If they if they didn't make this even more distinctive, there's a literal line with a curtain, and when you step across that line, it's now us versus them, right? And to make sure you know where that line is, they pull a curtain. And now I'm sitting at the back of the plane. Yeah, I'm sitting back where the toilet is, not the best place to be. And you're sitting in there, and you're sitting in these seats, and I'm sitting closer to people that I don't know than I sit close to my wife when we were going on a date. It's probably like sitting in my lap, and we're all sweating back there. And then they're going to bring those TV dinners out to us. I don't even know what I'm eating. And those folks up there are carving prime rib. And then the attendant comes on and says, just as a reminder... The bathrooms in first class are only for those in first class. So you losers don't be coming up in here using the first class bathroom. You've got your bathroom back there. And by the way, 200 other of your closest friends are going to be using that bathroom while up there it may be one bathroom to five people. You get where I'm going, right? Immediately you feel that whole thing you felt when you were in middle school and you didn't get picked to play kickball or football or basketball. They were picking teams and you were the last one to get picked, right? There's that moment of us and them. And this is not to disparage someone who has the means to be able to do so, but just to get the point across, you, you know what that feels like, to be there in that moment, to not be part of that group. 
James is going to talk about that. He's going to talk about partiality. The whole idea of partiality is it's us and them, whoever them are. I know that's bad grammar, but hang with me. James is going to talk about this whole idea of discrimination and that discrimination has been part of our landscape, part of our world, part of our human existence ever since Adam and Eve in that garden decided that they were going to disobey God, partake of a fruit that he told them not to eat. Although they had a garden full of fruit to eat, they wanted that tree and they wanted that fruit and they ate of it. And it cast all of us into sin and brokenness and, yes, racism and discrimination and partiality. The reality is, is that right after the garden incident, you, you see Adam and Eve, they have a couple of boys, fine, strapping young men, Cain and Abel. And if you read that story closely, what do we find immediately in their story? We find an us versus them, right? Cain looks at Abel and says, you know, Abel seems to be more welcomed by God. Cain sees Abel and says, well, Abel has got something that, that I should have. And you know where that leads to? The first murder. Fast forward in the Old Testament and you'll see the Jewish people go into Egypt because there's not enough food. There's a famine in the land. And you know the story of Joseph and God provides for the people. But, but God had already told Abraham and his descendants that they would be in a foreign city, a foreign land for 400 years. Well, the first few years they're in Egypt, everything's going great, going good. They're, it's not an us versus them. But then the Pharaoh dies, and another Pharaoh takes charge. And that Pharaoh looks at the Jewish people not as human beings, but as less than human beings. And you know what the Pharaoh does? The Pharaoh says, no, it's us versus them. They are not like us. They are different from us. They worship a different God. They have a different diet. And we are going to subjugate them. We're going to turn them into slaves to build our cities and to make us wealthy. And for 400 years, that's exactly what happened. The Israelite people lived in an us versus them society. Moses comes along, leads the people to freedom. Fast forward over to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is, is calling the disciples to follow him. And there's this one disciple named Nathaniel. And, and in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 46, yeah, verse 46, Nathaniel is approached by his brother and says, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, the, the promised one, the Christ has come. You know, they've been waiting thousands of years for the Messiah, the promised one to come. Nathaniel, he's here. Okay, great. Tell me about him. Well, first of all, he's from Nazareth. You know, what, you know what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know why he said that? Because Nazareth, Nazareth was on the other side of the tracks. Nazareth was well known for, well, a rough community. How in the world could Messiah come out of that community? And Nathaniel reveals... Well, his discrimination, even concerning Messiah. Fast forward over in the book of Acts, the gospel is spreading. The, the gospel is spreading, not just among Jewish people, but then the gospel begins to spread beyond the walls of the city of Jerusalem, even to a group of people that were hated, I mean hated to the core, they're called Samaritans. Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people because they looked at the Samaritans and they said, the Samaritans are a mixed breed of people. They've mixed in with all kinds of Gentiles and they're less than us. You see, it's us versus them. And in that New Testament church, these leaders struggle with the whole idea of the gospel going to people like them. This may surprise you. And for those of you who kind of grew up in the 50s and 60s, when racism was at its all-time high. African-Americans were being treated horribly. And they deserved the freedom the Constitution provided. And in the South, in particular, you have the rise of the KKK who were filled with hatred and were putting people to death simply because of the color of their skin. And did you know, did you know during that same time frame, there were Baptist churches, Baptist churches, mainline denominational churches, that took God's word and promoted racism and partnered with the heinous acts of the KKK. Can you believe that? It happened. I hate to tell you that. I'd love to tell you that that didn't happen, but it did. 
So partiality, discrimination has been part of our landscape ever since the fall. And, and I don't mean to be a pessimist. I just, I just know what the Bible says. That that racism and discrimination is going to remain until the Prince of Peace puts it all down as he reigns in power and authority. I hate to tell you that. The fact of the matter is, we live in a world that discriminates. But here's the thing we've got to deal with this morning. Is that every person in this room has the potential to show partiality and discrimination. Whether you're poor or wealthy, regardless of the color of your skin, we all have the potential to say it's me versus them, whoever they are. James is going to deal with this and he, he deals, he goes right to the heart of the issue and he's going to, as, he, as we've said earlier, he's Mr. Practicality. He's going to deal with the practical aspects of it, and then he's going to go into the doctrinal, the, the theological premise for why no Christ follower should ever be partial. I don't think we realize how easy it is to discriminate. I don't think we realize how easy it is to show preferential treatment to someone while pushing others away. Jesus commanded his church to love people, but not just the people you want to love. Look at what he says in James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers and sisters. Your translation may just say brothers, but he's talking to brothers and sisters. He says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here's what James says, just to kind of flip it around a little bit. James says that if you have placed faith in Jesus and he has changed your life, you are a disciple of Jesus, then there is no place whatsoever in your heart for partiality or discrimination, period. Jesus says, James says, that if we follow Jesus, we're known for our love, and that love is to be given to all people without partiality. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then James is going to give us an illustration here. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So, so let's unpack that a little bit. Let's, let's bring that to our culture this morning. Let, let's imagine that you're on our welcome team out here on a Friday, and you're standing at the door, and you're watching people drive in, and you see somebody drive in in, in a very, very expensive automobile. Let's say a Rolls Royce. That's pretty expensive, right? James is saying there is a danger in that moment that we may treat that person differently than the person who rode in here on a bicycle who, or who walked in on shoes that are wore out and comes into our assembly. So the idea is the person who comes into the Rolls Royce walks in and they've got the nice Rolex watch and they've got the nice clothes. and It, they, they're, they're, it seems to be that this person has a lot of wealth. In James' day, it was a little harder to distinguish, although the way they lived then, a little different. You see, they had no banks to put their wealth in. They had no safety deposit boxes. So if you had a lot of wealth, you often wore it. So in James's day, if you had a lot of wealth, it would be signified by lots of rings on your fingers. So the more rings that you had on your fingers, the more wealth that you had. So when someone came into the synagogue or, or to the church and you saw all of these rings, you would immediately go, ah, there's a person who's wealthy. It was just a status symbol of their day. For us, it might be a Rolls Royce and a Rolex watch. But nonetheless, when that person comes into your fellowship, if they get preferential treatment... We've got a problem. Notice what he says. He says, for the someone who comes in in shabby clothing, someone who comes in, their clothes are torn. Maybe they haven't had a shower in a while. Maybe they're homeless living in a tent. Maybe, maybe they don't have a home at all. So they don't have access to a shower and access to what you have. So they come in and, and it's obvious they don't have much. So, so to the wealthy person, we say, we're going to give you the best seat. And the Baptist church, that would probably be the back seat, Right? In this particular setting, if it was a synagogue that James is referring to, it would be right down front in the seat of prominence. There were seats up at the very front. There were seats for prominent people. 
and you put that person in that prominent seat. Now, for the one who's poor and his shoes are all broken and you know, uh, he's got a little bit of smell about him, then you make him sit on the floor at your feet. Verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James gets to the heart of the matter, and the matter is the heart. James says that in that moment between the wealthy man and the poor man, there are distinctions being made in the heart of the one who offers the best seat or the worst seat. And those distinctions that are going on in our heart, that's the core problem. In that moment, we are making a distinction about those two people, that one is more valuable than the other. We are making distinctions. And listen to what James calls those distinctions. He calls them evil. Folks, we've got to get our arms around this. James says that discrimination, whether it be between wealthy and poor, whether it be between black and white, whether it be between someone who's made some bad choices in their life and someone who grew up in a two-parent home and had all the luxuries therein, he says if you make a determined a distinction in your heart between those two people, let's call it what it is, it's evil. And where are we today in our culture? All about the us versus them. That's what it's all about, right? That's why we have a dumpster fire. Us versus them. And everybody is throwing bombs at the other people, and they're throwing the bombs back, and we are spiraling off into a society filled with hate. Now, it would be easy for me to say, oh, that's out there. But we need to deal with it in here. James says, you become judges with evil thoughts. What? What's going on in our heart in those moments when we're making those distinctions? Well, first of all, let's take his illustration, the wealth versus the poverty. You may be shocked to find it, or here, maybe you've experienced it, maybe you've seen it. I hope you haven't seen it here. Yeah, let me know, we'll deal with it. But why would we make that distinction in our heart between the wealthy and the poor person? Why, why, would, we, why would we offer more of the VIP treatment to the wealthy person versus the poor person? I'll tell you what, what one motivation is. Well, that person may give us something in return. Maybe that person will write a big old check. Maybe that, maybe that person will bring some spotlight on our ministry, some spotlight because they're famous, they're powerful, they're, they're a shaker and a mover in our community. If we can get them in our church, then everybody else will go, wow, they got that powerful, wealthy person in their church. Well, well, maybe I need to go there. But ultimately, I think it comes down to, will you write us a check? You know, there are churches that cater only to people who can write checks. We'll pursue the person. The, the, the pastor may follow up a little bit more with the VIP than someone who came in with their shoes, shoes torn off, riding a bicycle. That we may make a few more home visits for one versus the other. See how easy this is to creep in? James is saying that there's evil thoughts going on when we're making these distinctions. I think another thing that may be happening is, is that some folks carry around this air of superiority that I'm better than you. So they're always measuring themselves against everyone else. So in that moment, whether it be wealth or whether it be something else, they're looking at that person and they're making a determination in their heart that I'm better than you, and they begin to look for reasons why they're better. Those people are like poison to a congregation. Distinctions. James calls it rightfully what it is, evil. Or it could be the exact opposite. It could be that this person looks at a wealthy person and tries to destroy their testimony by gossip or in their own heart, tear them down. So it may be not that they feel superior, but they feel inferior, so they're going to drag that person down to a level so they can feel better about themselves. All three of those are evil intentions in the heart of why we draw distinctions, and James calls them evil. Evil. James talks about some practical reasons they might want to consider in this particular fellowship. He says, listen, those who are poor in the world, God is calling them to be rich in faith. The early church, if you go back, if you can go back in time to Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, 5, and 6, and you could, you could be part of the church in Jerusalem, here's what you would see in that congregation. You would see abject poverty. 
The church in its initial launch, after Peter preaches, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. In Acts 2, 41 through 47, in the following chapters, what do we see over and over again? We see poor, absolute outcasts, people that Judaism had forgotten about. Widows, orphans, people who were poor, coming to faith in Christ. The people within the church who had the means were selling off their own property to be able to help those in need, Barnabas being one of them. So if you look at the New Testament church, the earliest days and the days that James wrote this, he says, look among you. Look what God is doing. God is calling those people out of darkness into light. The very ones that you are showing partiality against is the very ones that God is transforming. He says, and also some of the wealthy folks that you've dealt with, they're the ones that's dragging you off in the court. Look at, listen to this. He says, verse 7, Are they not the ones, the ones who are wealthy, the ones you're showing partiality to? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? In other words, he says, the very ones you're showing partiality to are the very ones that despise the name of Christ. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? The church that I, I grew up in, I love the church. I mean, my parents still attend there. The church I grew up in, in was a fiercely independent, fiercely fundamental church, Baptist church. And the church that I grew up in, I heard numerous sermons. And this is not the slight, the pastor I grew up under, he's a great man, I loved him. He's with the Lord now, has been for several years. But I, I want to call this out. I heard many a sermon talking about that horrible, awful, big Southern Baptist church across town. It just happened to be the one that my wife attended. Before we, before we started dating. But they called that church out. Oh, that church is liberal. Oh, that, that church up there. Oh, they, they've, they've skewed off from God's word. They're, they're liberal. They are awful. They are terrible people. I heard that multiple times. Not just that church in particular, but any church in that same vein. Any church that was big, any church that quite frankly was doing anything, the church I grew up in spoke against it. And then one day, my wife and I went on a date and she invited me to her church. And I opened up that bulletin and I see mission trips. I see all kinds of ministry happening. And now I've got a, I'm a, I got a paradox now. I've been told my whole life that this church is wrong. But what I'm seeing is a whole lot of right. As a matter of fact, what I'm finding is a whole lot of people who love one another. I'm finding a lot of people who take the Great Commission seriously. I'm finding people who, yes, the women don't wear dresses every, church, every Sunday to church. My church spoke against that. My church said if you didn't wear a suit and tie, you were less than. Do you hear that? My church said for years, if you don't wear a suit and tie to church, you are less than. Never really made sense to me because I couldn't find it in the Bible, but nonetheless. When I was an associate pastor, um, I had a teenager in my ministry whose mother died of an overdose. And she asked me, the teenager asked me if I could do her mom's funeral. And I said, absolutely, be honored to do that. Her mom was part of a, a kind of a small country, independent, fundamental Baptist church out in the country. Didn't know the pastor, didn't know the church. But I was going to fulfill what this teenager had asked me to do. I was going to help this family as much as I could. So I, I go out there the day of the funeral, and I've got my suit on, got my tie on, ready to go. I used the New King James Version Bible. That's what I used at the church I was at. A lot of the churches up in the area I'm from is, is very, very, very strong King James Version only. So I get out of the car. As soon as I shut the door, I've got a pastor like right in my face. Didn't know the guy. Didn't say hello. Didn't introduce himself. Didn't smile. But this is what he said to me. He said, uh, and I thought this was interesting, Sonny. <laughs> he said, I know that big church you're from. And I know that that church you're from is a big old liberal church, and we ain't for any of that here. And if that Bible under your arm is anything other than the King James Version, you can get back in that car and go back to your big city church. Once I got my flesh under control, because I just about lost it right there in that parking lot. Once I got my flesh under control, 
I realized he's making a distinction. His church is better. He's a better pastor. It's us versus them. I wonder if he read James chapter 2. What, well, you might be wondering, what did I do? Well, I'm not going to abandon the family who asked me to be there. So I put my new King James back in the car, and I snuck around to the basement of the church, went into the Sunday school, got me a King James Version, and I did what I was supposed to do. And I swallowed my anger, and I swallowed my flesh, and honored what that pastor requested, although I think he could have done that a little bit better, did what I needed to do on that day. Partiality, discrimination. I heard a story one time of a New Testament scholar this guy had been teaching in seminary for 30 years, pastoring at the same time. He was invited to a, a, a pastor's conference to speak, big pastor's conference. He goes to this big hotel where the conference is going to be happening. And when he walks into the big welcome area, they're serving snacks and drinks for all the people who are attending the conference. And he, he, notices, he notices that the wait staff is just overrun. There's several thousand people there, and they can't keep up. So what does he do? He, he walks over to one of the wait staff, and he says, can I help you guys? Can I help you put some you know, canned drinks out, water bottle? He said, man, that would be awesome if you could do that. So the keynote speaker at this conference with his suit and tie walks behind the table, and he's setting drinks up on the table trying to help the wait staff just keep up with the crowd as it comes in. One well-known pastor, written many books, is going to be at the conference as well. He's one of the speakers too. But he didn't know who the keynote speaker was, this New Testament scholar. He walks up to the table to get a drink. The New Testament scholar is behind the table serving drinks. They don't know each other. He knows, the scholar knows this guy, but this guy doesn't know him. And so the New Testament scholar guy, seminary professor, starts to strike up a conversation with this pastor. You know what the pastor did? Just blew him off. Because in the pastor's mind, he's just a servant. He's not important. A distinction was made in his heart. Well, you can imagine how surprised this pastor was when the keynote speaker for this event where there's 5,000 people at is none other than the guy who just tried to serve him a drink and tried to strike up a conversation because he's sitting right behind the pastor and when they announce his name and he walks up to the podium, this guy, the color in his face, drains out of him because he realized he had made a distinction that he was a nobody. Yet he was a somebody. Afterwards, this pastor, well-known pastor, all of a sudden wants to talk. All of a sudden wants to pat him on the back and tell him what a good job. And the New Testament scholar couldn't help but ask, um, you know, I'm the same guy here that I was serving the drinks out in the lobby. But in that pastor's mind, he wasn't. Partiality can creep in. And let's listen a little bit more what James has to say about this. So, so James is very practical there. He gives us a nice little illustration about a, a wealthy man and a poor man coming into the fellowship. Verse 8, James is going to dig into the theological doctrinal premise behind why we don't discriminate. Verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Jesus made a pretty startling statement one day when he was asked, what is the most important law? Now, they, he was asked that to try to trap him. This is in Matthew 22. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and he says, this is, this is the greatest. You can hang all of the law and all of the prophets on this statement. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. He simplifies it. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, you can easily look and see that these commandments divide up into either loving God or loving neighbor. First commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. Which category do you think that is? Love for God only. Well, then there's another commandment that says you shall not commit adultery. Love a neighbor. You shall not steal. Love neighbor. You shall honor your parents. Love neighbor. Horizontal love based on the vertical love we have for God. Now, James says 
that the premise, the doctrinal premise that, that underlines why no disciple of Jesus should ever show partiality is summed up in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, partiality, discrimination, is the exact opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. But listen to what else he says. He says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Wow, that's a powerful word. It's a very unique word, transgressors. The Greek word behind it. It's unique. Not used a whole lot in the New Testament. But when it's used, it begs for our attention. So James has already said that distinctions in our heart, partiality in our heart, is evil. He's already said that. Now he goes on and he says, not only is it evil, but it's a sin. What is a sin? Well, sin is missing the mark. What do we mean by that? God has set a righteous standard by what it means, what it looks like to love neighbor as self. Jesus, being that perfect, righteous standard, lived out for all the world to see. We look at his life, we look at how he loved, we look at what he did in loving neighbor, and we want to emulate that. Now, the Ten Commandments... The Ten Commandments, while the law is not no longer bearing upon the follower of Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the law completely. He dies on the cross. He resurrects. When we put our faith in Jesus, we die and are resurrected to new life. So we are dead to the law and alive to Christ. James says, if we show partiality, we are committing sin. Sin being, we have missed the mark. God says, love neighbor. How do we love neighbor? By not committing adultery. By not stealing, by not coveting. We love our neighbor by not doing these things and doing things that undermine them. We, we, don't, we don't show racism. We don't, we don't live in discrimination. We, we love people the way we love ourselves. He says, so first of all, you've committed sin. Sin is missing the mark. This is what God intends for you. This is what God has empowered you to do. This is what Christ has called you to do. And as a faith, faith follow, a Christ follower by faith, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. So you have all that you need to live this out in the world. So you have sinned, you've missed the mark. But that's, he doesn't stop there. He says, but you're also convicted by the law as a transgressor. What does that word mean? Well, it has kind of a twofold definition to it. Transgress means to be beside something, but also to step over something. So let me kind of frame that. Although as Christ followers, we are not bound by the law, the law is still important because it helps define for us the boundaries in which God has given us freedom to live. So for example, God says, love your neighbor. And as long as you love your neighbor, it keeps you out of a whole host of problems. God says, don't commit adultery. In other words, there's like a guardrail here. And this guardrail says, be true to your marriage. Don't cross this boundary. If you cross this boundary, not only are you going to live in a world of hurt, but it's going to bring sin and transgression into your life. It's almost as though God has put boundaries in our life to say, as long as you live inside these boundaries... You're going to find peace and freedom and joy. You step across these boundaries. For me, you want to be stupid and cross the line, then guess why? You're going to have to suffer the circumstances of that. The transgressor is the one who stands beside these boundaries, sees the boundary. But the one who transgresses is the one who steps over that boundary. What does that mean? It means we consciously know what is right and wrong and we ignore it for our own purposes. When it comes to the context of discrimination, we know as Christ followers, we are called to love people as we love ourselves. We were loved with that kind of love. God shows no partiality. He showed no partiality when he transformed you. He showed no partiality to whether you were poor or wealthy, the color of your skin. He could care less. He called you to his gospel and it transforms you. He had no partiality in that. So then what God does is he sends us that says, now you don't show any partiality as well. We know that, but yet in our heart, when we make those distinctions, we cross over that boundary. And James says we are transgressors. We consciously 
deliberately do it. Not only is that evil, not only is that a sin, but it's also a transgression. Look what he says next. He says, for whoever, it doesn't get any better, by the way. Hold on just a minute. Wait, wait to hear in verse 10. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has been accountable for all of it. Oh, my goodness. You ever heard anybody say, well, at least I ain't killed anybody? <laughs> Maybe you've said that. You know the context in which you said that? It's when you did something wrong. Well, at least I didn't kill anybody. Okay, great. Is that, is that supposed to make us feel better? Listen to what James says. James says when you break one of the commands, you break them all. It's a unit. So, to illustrate, let, let's imagine that you are uh, convicted or you are caught for murder. You took the life of another human being and you were standing before the judge. And, and your defense is this. Well, at least I didn't commit adultery. Is that going to carry any weight with the judge or the jury at all? No. Because you've broken the law. And now you must be punished. Think of it this way. You're holding on to a chain. And in that chain, there's a weak link. And that weak link breaks. Does it matter that any of the other chain links didn't break? You're still going to fall, right? God's law is a unit. And God's law is a representation of His character. And so when you break one of them, you break them all. Does that seem unfair? Well, no, actually it's not. Because sin and transgression, regardless of what they are, regardless of what you've done, is what separates you from God. If you are lost today and you never put your faith in Jesus, what's between you and God is all of your sin and your transgression that you were born into that you chose to do. And that separates you from a holy God. And therefore, somebody's got to come in and deal with all of that sin between you and God. Well, guess what? That's already been... It's already been done. It's already been accomplished. Jesus accomplished that on your behalf with the invitation for you to put faith in Him. James says that the law is the unit. You break one, you break them all. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are still a transgressor of the law. You transgress one. You step across one boundary you might as well walk across all of them because that one boundary contains all of God's commands. Now, we, as followers of Jesus, we are not called to keep the law. Jesus kept it on our behalf. But the law is important for us to understand what loving God and loving neighbor looks like in the real world. So they are important. Notice what he says next. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is the idea that when we put our faith in Jesus, yes, there's boundaries defined. But inside those boundaries, get this, we have freedom. We have this law of liberty or law of freedom that in Christ, in the way we live day to day, we have incredible amounts of freedom to live out in peace and joy what God has set before us. Let, let, me, let me again frame this in an illustration to help you get it. And This one is probably the most obvious one, but an easy one to, to illustrate. God gave sexual intimacy to humanity to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. So there's your boundaries. Your boundary is, is that sexual intimacy is between a husband and a wife within a marital relationship that they establish for life. There's your boundary. And here's what God says. God says, now, if you'll stay on the inside of that boundary, which means wait until you get married, then you will be able to enjoy all of the blessings of sexual intimacy between you and your spouse. That within those boundaries, you have freedom. Within those boundaries, you don't have to worry about shame. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because some of you have already chosen to live outside that boundary. And you know what I'm talking about when I say the shame that comes with it. You, you engage in that sexual activity outside of marriage. And what happens almost instantaneously is the shame and the reproach. You feel dirty. You feel like you've done something wrong. There's like a cloud hanging over your head. You know why that is? You've transgressed. You've crossed over a boundary that God put in place to say, you cross that boundary, yeah, there's going to be brokenness in your life. You stay within these boundaries, which means follow through with the marriage covenant 
and then enjoy the sexual intimacy within that because that's how I have built the world. Stay within there and you've got all the law of liberty, the freedom, and wish to enjoy what I've given you. But he also says in verse 12 that speak and act as though you're going to be held accountable for the freedom or the transgressions. Christ follower, hear me well. Your salvation is secure. You're never going to lose your salvation. God is not going to cast you aside. But make sure you understand that there will be a day where you will stand eye to eye with Jesus. And Jesus is going to look at you. And the books are going to be open. And your life, how you've lived it, all the stuff that you hid in your heart that you thought nobody else knew, the discrimination, the partiality, the hatred, the I'm better than them, all that, it's all going to come out. It's all going to come out. And you're going to have to look Jesus eye to eye as he goes over this with you. Now, you're not going to be cast out of heaven. But I can guarantee you this, there's going to be shame, reproach, and there's going to be a whole lot of wish I could do it over. James says, live today with that day in view. Live today as though you're going to have to stand before Christ tomorrow. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, in that moment when you're discriminating, in that moment when you're showing partiality, you're not loving neighbor. You're judging neighbor. And it may be that you were going to hope to get something from them. It may be that you need to feel better about yourself. It may be that you have an air of superiority about whatever the motivation is. In that moment, you are doing everything but loving neighbor. And one day, even the most minute details is going to come out. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, James is saying, hey, how you live today is going to have an impact in eternity. You show mercy today, wow, you're going to experience incredible mercy when you stand before Jesus. You're showing a whole lot of judgment today, and you stand before Jesus it could be a very judgmental tone that he has. Very hard things to say to you. You know where I found that there is a place that I've experienced where partiality and divisiveness and distinctions are just gone. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about just, just gone. Some of you have experienced this. It's in an ICU waiting room. Think about it. You're in an ICU waiting room because you have a loved one that's back in the back that you can't go back and visit, so you have to sit out in the waiting room and wait for the visiting time, right? And who are you sitting out there with? You may be sitting out there with some an African-American family, a Hispanic family, people who are wealthy and people who are poor, People who've made bad choices in their life. Maybe that's the reason the person's in ICU. They've made some bad choices. And what's happening in that waiting room? Have you ever noticed? We're all talking about our stories. We're all talking about our loved one who's back there and, and what they're going through. And you're hearing their stories and they're hearing yours. You know what? You're not thinking about them as far as the color of their skin. You're not thinking about them if they're rich or poor. You're not thinking about any of that. you got the, the garbage collector whose wife is fighting cancer and She's got pneumonia and is on a ventilator. And you got a wealthy CEO whose kid was on a motorcycle and had a wreck, and he's on all the machines and not expected to live. And you've got a, another person over here whose sister's back there because she overdosed on heroin. And, and you know what's happening in that, in that waiting room in that moment? Nobody cares about the color of your skin, nobody cares about how much money you've got. And the CEO loves his kid just as much as the garbage collector loves his husband, loves her husband. And you're just there waiting the next doctor report. Oh, you need a blanket? Sure, I've got a blanket. Hey, you have, you have, a, you have enough to eat over there? Sure. Hey, I've got, I brought some extra snacks. Here's your stuff. Hey, you need some money to get something out of the vending machine? You've all experienced this, have you not? Isn't it an amazing thing? You know why it's happening there? You know, you know why it's happening in that ICU waiting room? Because we are staring at life and death. We are sitting there thinking that our loved one's not going to come out of here. And so all pretense goes away. It's just us, just real people, no mask. Because we're all in this together. Well, guess what? 
We don't have to wait to an ICU room, waiting room, to know that that's the reality of our life. Not a single person in this room can tell me with confidence that you're going to be alive tomorrow. No one in this room has a promise of tomorrow. No one in this room knows if you're going to see the sun come up tomorrow morning. None of you have a guarantee. So why in the world are we living our lives and so we're better than someone else because we think we're going to live forever? No. James says that to live with partiality and discrimination, it's evil. It's a sin. It's a transgression. And make no mistake about it, Jesus will deal with the contents of your heart, the motivations of your heart, when you have to stand before him one day. So my suggestion and my hope is, is that we as a church body, whether the wealthy man comes in or the poor man, whether someone comes in and the color of their skin may be different, they may have tattoos all over their body, they may have fears, I do not care because life is short. They need the gospel. And where does the gospel start? With loving your neighbor as yourself. Father in heaven, because we have experienced this great love, we are to be ambassadors for that kind of love. Because we have been given grace, we are to dispense grace. Because we have been forgiven, we are to forgive others. Because we have been adopted by you, we are to then take that kind of love to a world that desperately needs it, and especially now. Father, I pray that you would guard our hearts, quicken our spirit, help us to see some of the depravity that lies deep within that we hide from everyone else. The idea that maybe we're better than someone. The idea that someone is less than. The idea that it's us versus them. Partiality, which is evil, which is a sin, and a transgression before your eyes. Father, we began this service with the simple request that you speak. And Father, we want to end this service with the same request. Lord, please speak. Speak to us individually. If there's anything in our hearts, I pray, Father, that we would be convicted by that. And Father, we would make things right with you. That we would begin brand new. So, Father, speak. We are listening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.